Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said could be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah show kicks off this evening evening. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we're going to get right into it with feedback. We'll jump into our first feedback. It comes in from Matt. Matt writes in and says, Hi, Noah. Thanks for all of your work with the community. A couple of things from previous shows. Number one, Xibo is a digital signage software, which consists of an open source server and clients for Windows and Linux. The project also has a paid for via license app for WebOS Android, and Tizen. Xibo is a very powerful, and the server can be run in containers or a lab stack hosted by the devs themselves. Media supported includes images, videos, RSS tickers, map sources, data sets, visualized as either tablets or tinkers, PHP queries that can be run against sources to make them some sort of room booking system. For example, the Linux client is provided via Snap and I believe is Intel only with no support for ARM devices at the moment. Uh, the second thing is Frigate. Frigate is an amazing piece of open source software. It's designed for CCTV or, uh, or security cameras, in other words, and supports various types of camera output streams using FFmpeg to grab the video feeds. Most interestingly is the usage of Google's ML libraries to categorize motion and tags that can be added, such as bird, car, person, dog, etc. Should multiple cameras be used, a coral accelerator device can be used to pass off the detection to remove the burden from your server. I use the Home Assistant add-on to run this with a single full HD camera, and it works amazingly well. The Home Assistant add-on allows for automations to be created based on motion from cameras and detected object types. Configuration is done via a YAML file, and a web interface is provided for easy access to the camera feeds, etc. Zones can be an effective way to tag an area where motion occurs, and the zone can be configured to ignore motion events here. Forget uses MQTT to provide event information to other systems. Support doesn't currently exist for pan, tilt, zoom cameras or for ONVIF. It isn't explicitly supported, but should the video output be easy to get at, it's likely that Frigate can process it. Thanks for all you do, Matt. So I love this kind of feedback. It's actually some of my favorite kind of feedback because it helps uh, the next person make their decision on, hey, here's what could work for me. And so I am currently... I, I underestimated how many Linux and open source NVR solutions were truly out there. And which is funny in a way, because it wasn't for a lack of looking, let me tell you. But as I've taught, as I, the more I talk about this, the more that people come in and say, have you heard about this? Have you heard about this? Have you heard about? So it, it, it's really, really helpful when you provide 
information like this. And, and I've seen XIBO. I've, I've not used it. XIBO. We'll have a link for you in the show notes. But if you're in the market for digital signage software, you might check it out. Our second email comes in from Charlie. Charlie writes in and says, Good day, everyone. I came across a video on YouTube mentioning Rustdesk. Rustdesk is a free open source remote software similar to those closed sourced offerings such as TeamViewer. And he links to the Rustdesk uh, GitHub page. He uh, links to the YouTube uh, video on Rustdesk and then uh, actually links to some show notes that talks about how to get Rustdesk up and running. Now, I've I've looked at Rustdesk a couple of times. So I think somebody wrote into the program not all too far long ago and asked about what we were using for remote solutions. And I told him or her that we were still using Simple Help. But our license is up at the end of the year for Simple Help. And one of the things that is true at our company is if it isn't open source, it is a placeholder until we find the open source thing that really belongs there. And so Simple Help is getting some real competition. Rustdesk is absolutely uh, near the top of my list. Um, it is the remote support system that Steve uses and really likes. There's another one that's come onto the scene, though, that I've been looking at lately and I'm really excited about, and it's called Rport. And you can learn more at Rport, the letter R, P-O-R-T dot I-O. And a couple things I like about Rport. So the first thing is it runs entirely in a web browser. So you go to, you know, support dot, you know, altaspeed.com colon two nine 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 and it makes you log you log in, authenticate to the system. Second thing I like about it right off the bat, it supports two factor authentication, which I think is really nice. Um but they it's it's an open source solution. They offer it in both an open source version that you can just download and have, or they offer a hosted solution. Now this is something that I think um some open source projects overlook the value of providing uh hosting. If you click, if you go to rport.io and click on, on, on pricing, you can just buy a hosted version for, you know, 50 devices or 200 devices. And they give you a price per month and then you just have that. Why I think that's valuable, if you're potentially evaluating a solution or if you're interested in open source solution, but you're not interested in managing an open source solution, which a lot of places are, uh, Offering the opportunity to just pay you a flat fee to host your thing will get that done. The other thing, and this is sort of a behind the curtains thing that I do, but it's the truth. I will go and evaluate a product largely based off of what their hosting looks like. I'll give you an example of that. I set up a matrix server. I ran a matrix client. It was okay. It worked all right. It did the things that I thought it should do, but it was a little slow and it didn't quite work as well as Telegram or WhatsApp or signal. And so I, I, you know, that was the comparison that I was making in my head. Well, then I signed up for an EMS plan and the people who actually made matrix hosted matrix. And guess what? Totally different experience, right? Messages instantaneous. And it clued me into, okay, this is really where the software limitations are. This is really where this product maxes out is over here. I wasn't experiencing that. I was experiencing my own limited understanding of how to do system administration for this particular product. So when you're evaluating something, and I would absolutely evaluate something like Rport, am I evaluating the benefits and detractors of Rport, or am I evaluating my ability to administrate Rport? And having a hosted option allows me to see what the best your, you can make your software do, because if you can't get it to perform to my standards, the chances that I'm going to be able to get your thing to perform to my standards are even lower. 
Right. And so I, I think it's really important that places offer a an ability to try now for free if possible, but at the very minimum, offer the ability um, to pay for it. So what do I like better about our port, our port over Rustdesk? So our port is, is specifically designed to manage an entire IT infrastructure, whereas Rustdesk is really designed as just kind of screen sharing remote desktop support. That, that's great. That might be what you're looking for in a home use scenario. But, you know, when you're managing hundreds or thousands of workstations, some niceties come into play here, right? The other thing, and this cannot be overstated, I like native apps, I do, but I would say more and more often, I run into native apps on Linux are Electron wrappers or they're Java wrapped things, um, which Simple Help absolutely is. And if I'm going to go that route anyway, I would much rather my only interface to the world be Firefox or a decent web browser. And if I can get to a point where I can open any web browser and I can instantly manage a bunch of machines and I have the security of two-factor authentication, man, we're really cooking with gas, right? Um, with our port, it allows you to securely log into any Windows or Linux server without a public IP address. So it's doing all of the tunneling through the uh, through the firewall, manage router switches, printers, IoT devices from wherever you are without a VPN. So this is a unique feature that our port does. If you have a single client enrolled in your R-Port server, and it exists on the network, a single client, you have essentially VPN access into that network. And that shouldn't really surprise anyone that you can get a remote desktop, remote desktop or SSH session without going through a VPN, that that just shows up. Because at the end of the day, if you're putting a client on the inside of the network, it stands to reason that 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 path exists. It's just not typically exposed in remote desktop software. And with our port, it is. Um, so that I really like. I, I, I also really like the fact that they support end to end encryption. And so you're not able to sniff any of the traffic. You have an encrypted session. Um, the source code is open. It's open source. It's MIT licensed. And so you can go audit the source code. Um, you can go uh, download a copy of it. Uh, nobody can rip the rug out from under your, uh, your shoes. And they don't put any limits on how many devices that you can connect to, um, which Rustdesk, I believe, does. I'm getting a couple of them confused in my head, but I think there's like an upper limit of how many you can run on one machine. Then you got to spin up a second one. Um, so all of those reasons, open source product runs in the web browser, is designed specifically for remote management, not just like, you know, a single one off uh, desktop support. They offer a, a hosted version that you can just go to their site and sign up for if you want to do that. And of course, they have a decent knowledge base that helps you understand uh, what you're doing. They provide really excellent documentation. So you can learn more at rport.io. But a decision, at least at UltaSpeed, has not been made yet. And so we're continuing to evaluate Rustdesk and rport, and we'll probably continue to do so for the rest of the year. Um, but have those two on your radar if you're looking for remote desktop support uh, softwares. I think both of them are really good. Our third email. It comes in from Mike. Mike writes in and says, hello, I've been looking for a decent budget friendly security camera NVR system for my home. My size would be about four cameras, possibly more, but never more than eight. I'm thinking I could use an NVR switch combo of sorts to keep it simple. I'm leaning towards a real link, but I'm unsure of how well it works with the Linux desktop. It seems their browser based system might require some sort of a plugin that isn't Linux compatible. We don't have any Windows or Mac machines, and I haven't found a totally straight answer yet from Reolink. I'm wondering if you had any good recommendations. Where should I look? 
I would like to get four cameras, 2K or 4K. I'd like to get a standalone NVR, have it a Linux desktop friendly. I prefer to keep all of my footage local with no recording fees, and I'm on a budget. Am I asking too much? Um, well, I can't answer your last question about are you asking too much until you tell me what your budget is. Um, so that's a, 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 a critical piece of information that I think is missing here, but I'll do the best I can. So let's start. I don't like Chinese cameras. I don't. I if you I'll see if I can go dig up the, 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 the YouTube link at some point. It probably won't make it out in the show notes this week, but I'll see if I can find it in a future week and we'll circle back to this topic. There's an excellent documentary that was done that um, outlined exactly what China is doing in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. And they essentially went everything that is technologically possible to control people and surveil people. We should do that because we technologically can. So why wouldn't we? Uh, And Chinese manufacturers of these cameras actively participate in this. There is a reason that if you go to a government facility, there is a reason if you work in a government facility that they buy Dell computers, that they don't buy machines uh, that are, you know, Chinese machines. There's a reason for that. There's a reason that, there are all sorts of import bans and installation bans on certain brands of camera like Hike Vision, which is not just Chinese made. It's actively owned by the Chinese government. OK, so that's not real link. But I suffice to say, if you're when you start looking at cheap cameras, you inevitably get to Chinese cameras because they're cheap cameras. And I have a hardcore line against them. And you can tell me all day long that I have a VLAN and I segregate the traffic off so we can't get to the internet. Okay, all right. I don't like Chinese. I I just wouldn't put it on my network. I wouldn't. If you want to, you can do what you want. When I start looking for inexpensive cameras, um, the first thing I try to do is, can I buy a good camera at a better price? And so for that, I look to Axis. You can find used Axis cameras on eBay for $30 or $40. You can find 1080p Axis cameras on eBay for $100 or less. And so if you're trying to be budget friendly, you can buy a really good camera for a really good price. What's the trade-off? The trade-off is it's going to be a slightly older access camera. And that comes with a whole uh, litany of other factors. So the first is that it may not have all of the original pieces that came with it. So you should be prepared to have a creative way to mount it or ask the seller, hey, does this include mounts? The second thing is, It's not going to come necessarily configured the way that it would out of the factory. So you should be prepared to reset it with access cameras. It's no big deal. There's almost always a button on there. You can look up the manual online ahead of time and figure out how to reset it. And the largest concern is that they oftentimes don't put updates out anymore. It's reached the end of life of where they're going to update it. That's why the facility pulled it out in the first place and is selling it for a dime a dozen on eBay. I bought a 4K access camera that wasn't receiving updates for like $200. That camera knew was well over a thousand. Uh, and I don't care so much about the updates. Now we can have a discussion about, well, it sits on a network that isn't connected to the internet. So what do I care if there are some vulnerabilities with the camera? Nobody's getting on the network to exploit the vulnerabilities. It won't matter. I'm treating it just like a closed circuit TV camera. I'm just doing it with network because it's cheaper to run cat six than it is to run Siamese wire. Hello. So I, that's my first inclination is buy a really good camera at a really good price. And so for that, I would look to access. But 
You don't want to do that. You're sitting there listening and going, nope, that's not for me. I want something I can order off of Amazon. I just want it delivered two-day prime. I want it new, the whole nine. Okay, all right. The next suggestion I would have is a company called GeoVision. And I will tell you that I have straight up pulled GeoVision cameras uh, that were in, that was in, that were installed by other places, and they've gotten so hot that the client was afraid they were going to start their ceiling on fire. So you should know that going in. It's a cheaper product, and there's a reason that they're a cheaper product, but not Chinese-made, Taiwanese-made, so slightly better, and near-perfect performance with every... Uh, with every system I've used it with, I've used it. I've used GeoVision cameras with a number of different NVR solutions, everything from Synology. Uh, we've added them to ZoneMinder. I'm trying to think of some other ones. And this is just an RTSP stream, RTMP stream. Um, a lot of the go-to features that were like, ah, oh, we, we really need that. So for us, one of the big things that we do with cameras is one stream goes over to the NVR and gets recorded. And then a smaller stream goes over to our Raspi display server and essentially goes to a big TV that, that does the, you know, cross screen display all the cameras. Well, there's no point in sending a 1080p stream to a box that's going to render it as a, you know, a 300 by 200 little postage stamp on the TV. Well, that's a waste of bandwidth. So we want to be able to send two different streams and you can do that with both GeoVision and access cameras. And so I, I have enough experience with them that I'd be comfortable telling you if you're looking for a budget brand and you want it new, GeoVision isn't necessarily a bad way to go. I would be careful about certain models. Uh, I would stay away from their like 360 uh, panorama ones. Those are the ones that I've seen get, you could fry an egg on the things. They get so hot. So I might stay away from those things and I might pay attention to them the first couple of weeks they're in production. But I, I can't think of one that I've seen fail that didn't overheat anyway. Uh, if, if they If they run cool and they're in an open environment, they're probably fine. And I would tell you that they're at least one step above the cheap Chinese crap that comes out of China. So take that as it were. I do have, I think, like six real link cameras in production. They're okay. I haven't been super blown away with it. I will tell you I have run into what you're talking about with the website plugin. Some of them actually require Internet Explorer and use ActiveX. And it would not surprise me in the least if the real link system does that. The other thing I would tell you to consider is, yes, you can buy an NVR and a switch all in one, and it's kind of like spork syndrome. It, it does it do PUE? Yes. And does it have a NVR in it? Yes. And so it's an NVR and a switch all in one. Is it a particularly good PUE switch? Does it have a good PUE budget? Does it support good switching features? Not really. Is it a particularly great NVR? Not really. But it's an NVR and a switch all in one. Same with the, same with the spork. So, for, for those reasons, I would I would encourage you to, again, don't be afraid to get gently used stuff. You can buy an HP 1920 switch, POE switch, for less than $100 on, on eBay, especially if you're going, you know, the 48 ports are the ones that, that, that really take in the dough. You go down to like a 24 port or even like a little 8 or 16 port, you're not going to pay that much for it. You could buy a Unify switch for like $100. That will do, uh, I think they have 160 watt uh, POE switch that you could use something like that to power four cameras. And then as far as an NVR, the, the the world is your oyster and listen to this show because it continues to unfold. So I would tell you that today, if you're looking for the, I just want to buy something and know it works, I would tell you to buy a Synology NVR and install the surveillance pa- surveillance station package. Um, to date, I've yet to find a less cost of, or a more cost effective, less time invasive 
better end solution for I just want to own something. I want all the footage to stay on the thing. I don't want to deal with cloud e-ness stuff. Um, they do a really good job of they are still going to license how many cameras you have on there. And you buy the license from Synology. But A, doesn't have to be on the Internet to activate the license. B, you can transfer the license to any device that you have. C, the license are as good as long as you have the device. So you could literally clone Zilla. You could put the license in, activate them, clone Zilla the drive. And for the rest of your life, as long as the, you can keep swapping you know, that drive and re-imaging it back on there, you're able to keep using uh, those camera licenses. So Synology can't pull the rig out in front of you. Is it a permanent place or is it a permanent solution or is it a placeholder? Well, it's a placeholder. And so that's where we get back to looking uh, at some of the other alternative NVR solutions. We've talked about them here on the program. We'll continue to do so. But um, if you're looking for, uh, you know, one that you might try, you might check out Frigate. I've not checked it out myself, um, but it, it definitely would be something to take a look at. And um, there's a number of them out there. Uh, the leading one that I'm looking at for open source stuff is uh, is Orchard. So we talked about that. You can look at, uh, I think, two, three episodes ago, uh, we talked about uh, Orchard in VR. And um, what I like about it is it's specifically designed for uh, multi-site. So you can learn more at ipconfigure, uh, ipconfigure.com. And they'll talk about Orchard Core and the, the VMS for either single single site or multi-site. So check those out, Mike, and let me know. Obviously, uh, if you do wind up with a real link, please let me know how you like it, how it works with Linux. And if you do go a different route, let me know what that is. If uh, there's anything more we can do, just write us back. Live at AskNoahShow.com or give us a call at 855-450-NOAH. I'd love to chat with you. Our pick of the week this week, our gadget of the week this week is the Note Kia Note with a T. The Note Kia. It's an open source Linux powered numpad phone. So picture this, right? You have your old Nokia phone and you like your old Nokia phone. It does the thing that you want it to do. It has decent battery life. It's a brick. You can throw it around. It doesn't break. It's fantastic. The screen doesn't smash. It doesn't track you. It doesn't have spyware on it. It's the best thing ever, right? And then you get to a point where you're like, but I don't have USB-C and I don't have Wi-Fi and I don't have Bluetooth and I need all of the common technologies that we use today so that it can be a functioning phone in today's environment. What do you do? The Note Kia is your most realistic answer to that. So the the Note Kia effort started over two years ago because of Ramu's increasing dislike for modern smartphones, something that every hacker is familiar with. Her firsthand experience with privacy violations, hackability, limitations on Android phones, is recounted in detail, leading to a strong belief that there is a fundamental problem with phones available today. Building new hardware from the ground up seems to be the only way forward. And two years later, here's what we have, the Note Kia. So, obviously, she wants to build this phone from the ground up. She could have just said, well, I guess we find a phone factory and we build a phone factory, and then you'd probably come up with something like what PinePhone is, right? And she took a different route, and I think this is where it's kind of cool. Instead of trying to reinvent the wheel literally from the ground up, she started with, well, there's nothing wrong with the case. And if we reuse an existing shell, that's A, the most economical solution out there, B, allows easy sourcing for these things, uh, and C, fits the ultimate end. Like you, Nokia already went through the trouble of designing a little shell and a front and a back and a screen and all those things. Like, why wouldn't you just pick up and start where they left off. So she did, and in the end, the Nokia 1680 series phone turned out to be the perfect candidate. So these phones are small, they easily fit in your hand, there's plenty of space inside the shell, and the replacement shells and batteries are easy to get. 
so she replaces the motherboard with a new motherboard and replaces the screen. So the old screen had a, a 128 by 160 display and she replaced it with an IPS screen with a 220 by 280 pixel. She wasn't able to find a small enough 4G model uh, module, but note, the Note Kia uses a LoRa module instead. Of course, it has Wi-Fi, Bluetooth. It, it features a Yamaha MA3 music synthesizer, has a Type-C charging port for charging and on the go, has an RGB LED. It has an SHT20 sensor. No idea what that is. And the 1680 version supports a 5 megapixel camera. So this is really a usable little telephone if that's what you're interested if you're looking for a feature feature phone numpad phone uh, this is actually a practical solution or could be a practical solution so uh, we'll have links for you in the show notes you can learn more at hackaday.com again we'll have the link uh, available to you at podcast.asknoahshow.com from the linux newswire newsroom this is the week in review with jt The European Commission's new open-source algorithm developed by the Joint Research Center can segment social media messages to identify, verify, and help manage disaster events such as floods, fires, or earthquakes in real time. An open-source USB 3.0 camera with an interchangeable lens thanks to an inbuilt C-mount as well as interchangeable sensors has been released. Microsoft has updated the Microsoft Store policies on June 16, 2022. One of the changes prohibits publishers from charging fees for software that is open source, or generally available for free. And the new policy also takes aim at stopping copycat programs. In release news, Mattermost has announced Mattermost 7 that brings new voice call, workflow templates, and an application framework to their open source platform. Last November, Grafana Labs launched OnCall, an on-call management tool for DevOps and site reliability engineering teams, as part of its fully managed Grafana cloud service. Today, the company has announced that it is open sourcing this tool, which should make it easier for companies in regulated industries that can't use Grafana Cloud to use it as well. KDE has released Plasma 5.25. Manjaro 21.3 has landed with various options for desktops. Plasma 5.24 LTS, GNOME 42, and XFCE 4.16. The Linux kernel 5.17 has reached end of life, and users are urged to upgrade to Linux 5.18. Fish Shell 3.5 has been released. And on June 15th, Ubuntu Core 22 was released, providing users with new capabilities to help accelerate performance and lock down security for embedded and IoT deployments. Valve has released Proton 7.0.3, which brings a number of improvements, particularly increasing the number of games that Proton can play. These include the classic adventure game Beneath a Steel Sky, as well as Age of Chivalry, Cities XXL, Star Wars Episode One Racer, and Warhammer End of Times, among others. There are also a number of bug fixes for various games, including Elden Ring. The new version also ups the frame rate for Street Fighter V. It also fixes video issues for other titles, including The Hunt, Ember Knights, Outward, and Celasta. The UK-based video games publisher Feral Interactive has announced the availability of its port of Total War Warhammer 3, the turn-based strategy game for Linux systems. In security news, A flaw in Travis CI has left thousands of open source projects exposed online by leaking sensitive information. A new rootkit affecting Linux systems has been discovered that is both capable of loading and hiding malicious programs. As revealed by cybersecurity researchers from Avast, the rootkit malware called SysLogK is based on an old open source rootkit called AdoreNG. Akamai researchers have discovered Panchan, a new peer-to-peer botnet and SSH worm that has emerged in March 2022. 
and this worm has been actively breaching Linux servers ever since. Panchan is written in Golang and utilizes its built-in concurrency features to maximize spreadability and execute malware modules. In addition to the basic SSH dictionary attack that it is commonplace in most worms, this malware also harvests SSH keys to perform lateral movement. And lastly, researchers from the BlackBerry Research and Intelligence team have claimed there's a new Linux malware that's nearly impossible to detect. According to the researchers, this malware can harvest credentials and gives attackers remote access and rootkit functionality by acting in a parasitic way to infect targets. Researchers have appropriately dubbed the malware, which was apparently written to target the financial sector in Latin America, Symbiote. For the past few weeks, we've been asking for your topics. We've been asking you to submit them in the Geek Lab. So you can go to geeklab.ninja from your web browser, or you can join us in element pound geeklab colon linuxdelta.com. You can use the hashtag learning, and our Marlin, our showbot, will pick up your idea and deposit it into a repository in which we can then really hone into a particular topic and then deliver on that. And so that this is going to be the, one of the first weeks of uh, putting together one of those segments. And so one of the things that you asked for is technical problem solving, the art of troubleshooting. And so that's what we're going to cover today. And to start, so this is what I do all day long, every day. This, I guess, is what UltaSpeed does. I guess my role in that changes a little bit. But technical problem solving and the art of troubleshooting is something that is can be really fun and rewarding. If you're a person that likes processes, if you're a person that likes digging into things, and if you don't mind following how deep the rabbit hole goes. Uh, and I don't mind any one of those three things. In fact, I actively enjoy it. I think that's probably the, the best part of my job. The novelty is what keeps it interesting. So we're going to systematically go through what what process do you follow? How do you go about fixing a problem or starting down a problem? And how do you provide resolution to the end user or the client, whoever it is, the aunt, uncle, grandma, sister, whatever? Uh, how do you do that? So before you do anything, and this is probably decent advice for anything in life, not just technical problem solving, you should always start with the end in mind. And so if you're sitting down to make chocolate chip cookies, you should identify that you want to eventually wind up with a tray of chocolate chip cookies, and that will help you guide the path. If you don't start with the end in mind, and I've seen this happen all too often, you wind up all over the map, and it's because you've not defined an exit strategy. You don't even really understand what it is you're trying to accomplish. Um, and the, 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 the best example I have of this, or the best analogy I guess I have of this, is uh, the idea of producers working through a jungle with machetes. So you have a bunch of people with machetes and they're hacking away at this jungle and cutting down these trees. And they're the producers. They're the problem solvers. They're the workers. They're, they're the people that are getting stuff done. Now, they're hardworking. They're motivated. They care about what they're doing. They have integrity. All of those things are there. And yet, if they're not cutting the right direction in the forest, they're not ultimately ever going to reach their goal, right? And so you have managers or you have supervisors, and the supervisors are enabling the producers to do their work. So they're sharpening the machetes, and they're writing the policies on how to most effectively cut down you know, all of this debris, and they're producing manuals so that the other people can get trained into uh, you know, chopping down forests well, and they're holding muscle development programs to build muscle and train people on how to do of this. All of these improvements 
to help the producers go and cut down the forest. Okay, but there's one big thing we're missing. If you climb to the tallest tree and survey the the the, the forest, you have to be able to go that we're we're cutting in the wrong jungle. We, we got to go this way, not that way. Right. And so that's where that concept of starting with the end in mind before you ever take the first step in troubleshooting. That is the first step. It's the predecessor to effective troubleshooting is starting with what the end is in mind. So for most places, if you're doing this for personal use, that really looks like having a cup of coffee with a person and talking to them. If it's in a business environment or you're doing this professionally, then oftentimes what that looks like is identifying what that business critical business's critical paths are. They don't care about your technical jargon. They don't care about your switches, your IP addresses. They don't care about your workflows, your operating system, the, the, your software. Believe None of that. It doesn't play into it for them. The vast majority of business owners couldn't care less about that stuff. What they care about is here's my bottom line. Here are the tools or the things that I need for my employees to get their job done. Here's what I want to accomplish. You make the technology work. That's about as involved as they want to get. You need to approach problem solving with that paradigm, with those goggles on. You have to look at it from their perspective. And sometimes as technical people, that can be very frustrating because we do get hung up on, well, this is a better software solution or this is a better idea. Or, this is a better concept or this is a more technologically superior way to do this. I remember sitting in a bus at a Linux fest a few years ago and a guy said, I wrote this distro. How can we get people to adopt it? Or I worked on this distro. How can you get people to adopt it? Right. It's a backwards paradigm. You're not looking at what the end user wants and then delivering on a need. You're trying to create a need and then funnel people into it. And that is a backwards way to go about doing things. So start with the end in mind. If that is for a business, you're identifying the critical path for the business. What do they care about? What will stop them from getting their job done? And then how do you use technology to supplement those things? We look at what problems block a critical path, and we're going to address those first. Then we're going to outline what defines success. What defines an exit? How have we achieved success? When do we ring the bell and say we're done? And this does something very important. It avoids scope creep, which is a very real thing in IT. And if you've worked in IT for five minutes or longer, you have dealt with this. If you work in IT, I challenge you to do the following. I want you to get up off of your desk, pause the podcast. And I want you to start walking down the hallway and I want you to count one, two, three. And I want you to tell me what number you get to before somebody goes, hey, so and so, while you're walking down the hallway, I, I, I just wanted to tell you about this issue I had over by you could fix. I had a girl ask me one time, she goes, you're good at fixing stuff. Could you come help me fix my car in the parking lot? It won't start. That's how people look at us, right? Because we are technical problem solvers. We are the people that they go to for help. And there is a correct and appropriate response to this. And then there's an incorrect, inappropriate response to this. I'll start with the incorrect, inappropriate response. The incorrect, inappropriate response to scope creep is that's not my job. Go fix it yourself. Okay. That is not serving another person. That is not helping another person. You very well might say, I am not a person that can fix cars. I don't really know much about it. Here might be my next steps. If I were you, I would call this person or I would look for these things or I would do these things. In my case, I went out and looked at the car and thought, well, I don't know anything about fixing cars. I'll see if I can figure it out. Uh, you know, and then we did and she would ended up just needing to be jumped and, you know, it was fine. So sometimes you can apply these types of skills that are very much, you know, I've designed this presentation 
to be about IT, but you could apply it to any sort of problem solving. It's important that you don't allow scope creep to come into your troubleshooting process, because if you do, you'll never get anything done. There'll always be another problem. There will always be another rabbit hole. I was talking to a good friend of mine who does uh, system administration at a much higher level than I do, and he was sitting down with a client and said, let's rank order all of the issues. And they sat down to do that. The problem was the client kept wanting to dig into every single issue. Well, let's go and fix this. Well, let's go and fix that. They get to the end of the day and they had fixed like two or three issues of the like 12 that they wanted to, but they still didn't have an actual prioritized list. So one, they're not starting with the end in mind because we don't even have a list of the problems, let alone which ones you want to solve. So we don't know where we're skating to. We don't know where we're cutting in the forest. We just know we're cutting down trees, right? The second problem is we haven't defined what success is, so we don't actually know what we're trying to solve. We're just problem solving, and the further we dig, the more rabbit holes there are, the more problems there are, and it seems like we never get anywhere, just a rat in a wheel. That isn't an effective path to troubleshooting. It's an exercise in frustration. So start with the end in mind. Second tip, always eliminate the low-hanging fruit first. I heard a security consultant once once say, you don't have to be the most secure environment in the world. You just have to be more secure than the next guy. And so he becomes the low-hanging fruit. And then that guy's the guy that gets popped, not you. And while that was a security reference, there's a lot of truth in that. And so if you can offload the work of troubleshooting, if we don't have to engage critical thinking skills, and we don't have to really dive into a problem, sometimes it's wise not to. So a good example of that is, is everything up to date? Are all of the patches applied? Are all of the drivers applied? Are the operating systems installed correctly or otherwise misbehaving? I can't count the number of times that I have gone to back up a support technician that's out in the field doing something and go to find out what's going on and find out that we're troubleshooting this problem and have been for quite some time. And now they've escalated it to the software vendor, hardware manufacturer, whatever. And that uh, entity is saying, well, yeah, we knew about this. We fixed this X amount of months ago and we applied a patch or issued an update or whatever, issued a recall, whatever it is. Just do that. If you can fix a problem that way, it's like taking a shortcut to the end. Why do you want to go through all of the rest of the steps that I'm going to spend the next 15 minutes systematically outlining if you can skip to the end and just solve the problem? So knock out the low hanging fruit first. If there's a patch, apply it. If there's a driver to be installed, install it. If there is something otherwise wonky, about the operating system, fix that first. The other thing that is sometimes gets overlooked, try earlier versions, also known as backtracing. So sometimes you'll have an issue and it won't creep up until multiple chains in the link or multiple links in the chain break. And then all of a sudden this, the problems are symptomatic and they surface. But the actual root cause, we'll get to root cause analysis in a second. The actual root cause of the problem was way back over here we just didn't know it yet until factors B, C, D, and E came into play, and now all of a sudden we're seeing the symptomatic problems of this thing over here. And one of the fastest ways to identify that as a source issue is by backtracing. So installing earlier versions. Did the problem exist here? Did the problem exist here? Did the problem exist here? Did the pro Ah, here's where it started. It starts here. If you can do that, that's a nice, easy way. Again, we're kind of skating towards the end. Something changed between here and here. What was it? What is in the change log? What does the software manufacturer say? Do we have to be running the latest version or can we hang out here for a little bit until we can identify why it broke from here to here? 
backtracing. And the third, uh, and the, the third low hanging fruit that you can do is a nuke and pave. Arguably my favorite of the, of the, uh, of, of the troubleshooting, uh, low hanging fruit things. I am a huge, huge, huge advocate of, I want to be able to reproduce a thing. And if I can't reproduce a thing, I don't really trust it to begin with. Uh, much to the chagrin to a lot of people I work with or work for. Um, it's one of those things like there's a lot of people that will work at a problem and they work 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 and then they get to the end and they solve the problem and they're like, yay, we're done. And I'm, I'm like, no, we've just started. Now let's blow it away and do it again. What? If you can't reproduce the steps to fix a problem immediately after solving it the first time, you have next to a 0% chance of being able to do that six months down the road, a year down the road, six, you know, year and a half down the road, five years down the road. And it will, trust me, will, not might, will come up again at some point. And so the more that you can formulize these processes, you can collect these processes, you can store these processes, you have a way to recall these processes, and you can reapply these processes, the more efficient in your troubleshooting you will ultimately be. It's like building on top of a base of knowledge. If all you do is figure it out each time and you kind of muddle your way through it, but you can't at the end of it tell somebody else how you got from the beginning over to the end, then you've not really actually solved the problem. You've just kind of stumbled your way into fixing it. Um, and th those are two very different things. So my my second, uh, my, my probably my favorite thing is the, the new can pay with a fresh install. If I'm having an issue on a system and I can't replicate that, that, that issue or I'm having a hard time replicating or maybe I can't get rid of it. So the only thing I can do is replicate it. The very next step I like to do is go take a cold shelf system and do a fresh install, match the environment as closely as I can and try to replicate the problem on a clean environment. That does a number of things. It's going to, when we get down to bug reporting, is going to help us there because we have something that a developer isn't going to trust. You're not just a one-off snowflake. The second thing it does, it very quickly takes us back to a known working state, a known expected working state, and then you build from there. There is an article that you have to read. I don't usually assign homework on the Ask Noah show, but I'm assigning you homework uh, if you're listening to this episode. Before you come back, you have to read. Uh, it is a blog uh, on, on KenYuWu.com, and the title is On Rebooting, The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Turning Computers Off and On Again. I'm going to read you the first little bit of his blog because it directly speaks to what I'm talking about here. Quote, turn on a miscomputer, turn on a mis... Ah. Easy for me to say. Turn a misbehaving computer off and on or stop a misbehaving program and then start it again. And often the problem goes away. Most users don't think hard about this. They just accept this as another insurmountable fact about computers. However, as you learn more about how computers work, I suspect that you start to feel uncomfortable about outgrowing this about never outgrowing this seemingly hacky and arbitrary fix. Professional engineers working for some of the most celebrated technology companies on earth and sometimes are reduced to blindly rebooting everything from their personal workstation to 100 node distributed systems clusters. Is this the best that anyone can do? Before a computer system starts running, it's in a fixed initial state. At startup, it then executes its initialization sequence, which then transitions the system from an initial state to a useful working state. This initialization sequence has been executed many, many times during development, during testing, and during the operation of the system. It is therefore likely 
to be very reliable. That is the transition from an initial state to a working state with a very high cumulative reliability. And this is not accidental. It stems from the fundamental characteristics of the engineering process that are built into the initialization sequence. When the system reaches a defect, it then leaves a set of working states and enters a broken state. By definition, this broken state is unexpected. Otherwise, it would just end in another working state. At this point, any attempt to bring your system back directly from the broken state into a working state is is improvisational. We are no longer like the classically trained violinist from Juilliard School of Music performing a Mozart sonata after rehearsing it thousands of times. Instead, we're playing jazz. And in the engineering of reliable systems, we do not want our systems to improvise. Now, I highly recommend, that's a ripping good read. I highly recommend you read that entire blog article. We'll have a link for you in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. But the summation of his uh, of his article is the following, that the most predictable time, the most predictable state of any system is right after a reboot, as fresh as you can get, as close to just nothing has changed. Why is that? The reason that is is because there are as few variables introduced as possible. And thus, our next tip for troubleshooting effectively in the art of troubleshooting is start with what you know and eliminate the variables. When you have a problem, it, it can be an exercise in frustration just trying one thing after the other. And truthfully, even at that point, if you find the solution, if you stumble into it, referencing this guy's blog post you're really kind of just improvising. It's really kind of best, like, good, I'm glad you had the good luck of fixing it this time. Can you really count on that being fixed every time? And do you really know why it broke in the first place and what you did to bring it back? Now, if you do, that's fine. And sometimes that's perfectly acceptable. But oftentimes, particularly in in environments you're not comfortable with, you don't know what you don't know. And so you don't know what you're looking for. The best thing to do in that scenario is start from a position of stability Eliminate as many variables as you can and then slowly reintroduce the variables until the problem reappears. Thus, you'll identify where your problem is. You need to simplify as best as you can. And when you can't simplify, isolate. What do I mean by the difference of simplify and isolate? Simplifying would be I took a brand new machine. I reinstalled the operating system. I installed the software. After I installed the second piece of software, the first piece of software start started working. And that is bringing it down to its most simplistic state. Sometimes that is impossible. Sometimes you have, I was working with a chemical engineering server for a, a university. Uh, the server was like $54,000. The chances that they were going to let me reinstall the operating system to see what might be the problem was, that would have been laughable. Um, so that just wasn't going to happen. But what could happen is I could isolate. I could run just one particular software stack at a time. Or I could, uh, I, I, I could isolate those processes to try to see if this process is gone and this process is there, does the problem still exist? If this thing is here and I change that, does this, does this happen? And so in a way, I'm still simplifying. I'm not actually changing the system. I'm just isolating what parts I'm concentrating on. Don't care what else doesn't work. Right now, I'm looking at this thing. Does this thing act as I expect it to? Okay, now put that away. Does this thing do what I'm expecting it to? Okay, put that away. Does the, Oh, here, this is not behaving like I expect it to. Okay, let's dig into that further. Okay, and that can come in a number of different ways. You can The, the, the way that you can apply these concepts 
are really up to your imagination. A practical way of what I'm talking about here is oftentimes examining logs. What started, what didn't start, what is it saying? Oftentimes, if you have a graphical application that isn't working, I don't know how you do this in Windows, but in Linux, you have a graphical application that isn't working the way you want it to. Uh, you can launch that graphical application in the terminal and almost always get a Googleable thing. So it'll kick out an error and then you have something that you can dig into a little bit. Uh, again, good luck if you're on Windows. I'm not sure what the, uh, what the Windows alternative to that is, but oftentimes looking into log files or looking at the terminal output will help you arrive at your solution. Um, the other thing is that goes along with this and eliminating variables, be firm with people, tell them what you're doing, why you're doing it and why it has to be done this way. I worked a, uh, a, a situation where there was an organization had a massive malware infection and went in and told them the way that we need to do this is pull all of the machines off the network. We need to clean them. We need to isolate them, clean them, put them back on the network one by one. Oh, no, you can't do that. It'll cost us $250,000 every day that it's down. It's going to cost us. Okay. All right. All right. So we did it their way. We pulled a single machine. The rest of the infected machines are on the network, cleaned it, isolated it, put it back on the network. It got reinfected. We pulled the next machine off, cleaned it, isolated it. You can see how this is going nowhere, right? It's, it's the definition of an exercise in frustration. So, you know, seven, eight machines in and they're all reinfected within minutes of plugging them back in. I went back up to the manager. I'm like, look, you can pay us to be here all day if you'd like. But by the time we get done with all of these machines, we're going to be right back to where we started. So you either let me take this entire network down and we're just going to start and bring them back one at a time. Or uh, you find somebody else because we're not going to be able to fix it this way. And just being firm and direct uh, got us what we needed to get. And then we were able to do it. Um, minimizing hardware and software configurations. So this comes back to if you don't, if, you, if you're trying to eliminate variables, the, le the more software you can get off the test system, the more hardware you can get out of the way of the test system, the less variables you have and the more accurate your troubleshooting shooting is going to be. And then obviously along with that is try it on multiple systems. If you're having a problem on one system, does it affect every system? I again, this is where the cold shelf thing really comes in. I can, I can do three or four of these uh, with a fresh install. I knew can pave, start with the fresh operating system, start with the fresh install. Yep. The problem's still there. Yep. It still does this. Okay. Here's the problem. Finally, we get to our root cause analysis, and this is often left out of troubleshooting because a lot of people just want to get the answer. They could care less if it's the right answer. Root cause analysis is finding the actual cause of the problem and correctly fixing it. RCA is a process to help people understand why the problem arose in the first place. And my favorite example of root cause analysis or trying to explain it is if your Internet goes out at your house, do you just go down to the coffee shop and go, well, the Internet works there. I'm back online. See, look, followed it back on Facebook. Ha. No. That's not, you've not fixed anything. You, all you've done is circumvented the problem. You've not identified the problem. You've not resolved the problem. You've not identified the root cause of the problem. You've not analyzed the problem. And this, I see this a lot of times with managed service providers because they're paid to close tickets. Get the ticket open, get the ticket closed. Get the ticket open, get the ticket closed. And who cares what the actual cause is? Who cares why it came up? They're not complaining anymore. They're good. So, I had a, a client that asked us to automate her, her uh, a space heater. She wanted to know if it was possible to put a space heater on a timer. Why do you want to put a space heater on a timer, I ask? Well, in the living room, I want heat. Okay. I notice your space heater is sitting about three and a half feet from your fireplace. Have you considered using your fireplace? Well, the fireplace doesn't work. What's wrong with the fireplace? Well, 
the little igniter thing is broken. Ah, so the problem isn't that you want to automate your space heater per se. The problem is that you want heat in your living room and the most correct way to get the heat in your living room, the root cause of why you don't have heat in your living room is actually a faulty igniter. So why would we spend time and effort automating an unsafe solution that is a space heater sitting on top of your carpet? Maybe instead we should spend 10 or $15 and fix the little igniter in your fireplace. And sure enough, called a friend of mine that works in heating and air conditioning. He was able to come over and we got our fireplace working. Now, we <laughs> not a very good business decision from the standpoint of we didn't really get to bill her anything because we didn't do anything for her. But we fixed her real problem. We determined the root cause of her issue and we resolved it. So there are three main uh, causes that you can arrive at when you're doing RCA. It can be a physical cause. So something has failed. It's a human cause. PEBCAC problem exists between keyboard and chair. Or it's an organizational cause or some sort of process or system that has broken down and that is not allowing uh, the process to complete. And so if we can identify which one of those three things are the root cause, then we can begin to fix it. And so the, the way that I would advise you go about performing a root cause analysis is define the problem. So how do they see the problem? What do they experience? What does the, the user tell you about the problem? Then gather info. This is where you're going through in fireplace ladies scenario, not just saying, so you want to automate a heater. Great. When would you like to come on? When would you like it to go off? That would be if I was just focusing on what she says the problem is, but you want to gather data. Why do you want the fire? Why do you want the uh, heater automated? What are you trying to accomplish? How is that supposed to work? How do you define success? How, you know, does this, how would you, how would you like to see this ideally work? Those sorts of things um, become instrumental and allow you to help guide your troubleshooting process. After you've gathered the data, then you lay all of that out and start to identify casual factors. So you look for the factors that led to those individual problems. Oftentimes what you'll find is whatever the problem is, is never just one problem. There's actually usually a series of problems or a system of problems. And if you break those down into individual, uh, again, we're searching for root cause analysis. So we're, so we're looking for the very basis. Sometimes, in fact, most often I would argue, you'll find that there are multiple root causes for any given symptom or any given problem. And so we'll identify all of those and then look at all of the factors that led to those problems becoming problems. We break it into chunks. Now, this does two things. First, it more clearly defines your path to success, because if you can identify what the problem is and you can identify an individual process to resolve it, uh, that's that that is a more efficient method. But it does something else. Breaking it into chunks modularizes the problem and thus modularizes the solution. So the next time you might come across an entirely different problem, but when you actually perform your RCA, you get down to the very bottom and say, hey, I see that this is, I've seen this before, this little problem, and here's what we fixed that before. You can just re-implement your module, your solutions module, uh, and you can repurpose it. And so just like a developer, a software developer might make a, a, a bunch of tiny little subroutines that just do one thing but do them very well, and then they can reuse those code snippets or those subroutines, we can do the same thing in troubleshooting. We can look at what we're trying to accomplish. We can break it down into individual pieces. We can fix those individual pieces, and then we can start applying those processes across the board. Lastly, we want to... Uh, so, so then determine the root cause for each factor. So this hopefully goes without saying, but when you've broken the problem down into individual components, then you want to do an RCA in each one of those and figure out what the contributing factors are and then implement solutions for each one of those and then communicate that back up the chain. Um, 
the next thing you want to do is documentation. And in, in a way, documentation is kind of weird because it's both the first thing and the last thing you do. Documentation should be the first thing that you consult before you begin the troubleshooting process, and it should be the last thing you do after you've completed the troubleshooting process, and here's why. Consulting the troubleshoot, or consulting the documentation, excuse me, before you begin the troubleshooting allows you to identify what you might be looking for and where you might look to find it. So if you understand how something is supposed to work, it better enables you to determine why something isn't working. And once you understand that, and once you understand what you're looking for, then you can really dig into it and actually try to solve the thing. The reason that it's the last thing that you should do is because work that isn't documented is work that's going to have to be repeated. And so, again, I refer to them as magic scripts. If you come into AltaSpeed or you do work for me and you say, here, I got the solution. And I go, great, show me how you did it. And you go, I don't know, I just, I just did it. That's useless to me. I, I, I mean, no offense, but that's useless to me. I need to understand how you arrived at the solution for two reasons. One is I business continuity. I need to be able to implement it myself. But two, in case you haven't noticed, I have a deep-seated, passionate belief that people should own their technology, and I give a substantial amount of my time away uh, every week trying to convince people that they should own their technology. And the only way that we can do that is if when you have a solution, if you don't document it, it becomes impossible for me to share. So we want to make troubleshooting and the solutions shareable. We want to make them discoverable. So document your steps in the troubleshooting so that it can be shared up the food chain back down to the client. The other thing is if you wind up in an escalation situation, that is you can't solve the problem. And so you're going to a software vendor, a hardware vendor, another consultant, uh, another professional that you think can help you, you can communicate what you've tried, what what it got you, what you learned more effectively. If you didn't document it, you say, well, we had a problem and we tried some stuff and then we tried some other stuff and we got this to work, but that didn't work. And it becomes a hodgepodge, becomes a mess. There's, there's no rhyme or reason to it. And it becomes impossible for the next person to decipher. So document your steps during troubleshooting, document your steps after troubleshooting. Uh, and if you have a workaround or a solution, that also should be documented and preferably on the Internet so that the next person that runs into that problem can stumble into it. So often I get frustrated when I see a, a form post that asks the exact problem I'm having and then somebody will say solved it, but they never say how they solved it. And uh, yeah, so make that be be kind to the next person down the road be willing to share what you've learned the rest of the class would like to learn and the rest of the class would like to not have to repeat your struggles so if you found it frustrating somebody else is going to find it frustrating document the solution put it on the internet let somebody else encounter it that leads me to effective bug reporting so this is the systematic approach of explaining to a developer where a bug in their software is or where a bug in the system is and what they need to do to, to fix it. Before I go any further, you need to hear something and you need to hear it clearly. If you take nothing else out of this episode, I need you to hear this part. A human is on the other side of your bug report. A human is on the other side of your bug report. I'm going to say it one more time for you guys in the back. A human is on the other side of of your bug report. So that should be at the very front of your mind with every key you strike that a human is going to read what you wrote. And oftentimes the human is directly tied to that project. It's that that project is that developer's baby. And we have developers at UltaSpeed that do development here. And, you know, they don't even, they're not even necessarily working on the projects that are passionate. 
to them. They're working on the projects that I tell them we need them to work on. And they get attached to the work that they do. And so then we say, hey, we're going to move this or we're going to change this. That's my baby. You need to be considerate and caring of the fact that the developer has a desire to understand what issue you ran into a field into in the field. They have a desire to serve you to fix the issue. They have a desire for their code to work. If they didn't, they wouldn't have gone into software development in the first place. But if you're mean about it, if you're rude about it, and if you don't take the time to properly communicate what is going wrong, they are not going to take the time to fix your issue. Number one. Number two, if it's phrased in a rude or otherwise degrading manner, not only are they not going to take the time to fix your issue, they're going to get burnt out and then they're not going to do what they do anymore. So a human is on the other side of your bug report. You should keep that at the front of your mind the entire time you're doing this. Okay, with that out of the way, there are seven things that you need to do to have an effective bug report. The first is a title or a bug idea or a reference point. We need some way that if two people are having the same issue, that we can merge all of that information in one place so that we're not. So, again, we're trying to determine root cause. We're trying to figure out, we're trying to organize information. We need to have a reference point. We need to have a unique identifying mark that tells us this is the bug. And so anybody else that is experiencing this thing or has something to add, it goes here. And you should do due diligence to make sure that a duplicate bug doesn't exist before you create one. After you've determined that, nope, nobody, this, I'm the first person in the history of the world to ever encounter this. That's amazing. I get to tell the developer. Okay. All right. So now we have a unique reference point. We have a title. We have a bug ID. The next thing we need to know is our environment details. What operating system are we using? What device are we running on? What software version are, are we doing? And by the way, this circles back to our earlier troubleshooting steps. If you have, if you're not running the latest version, I would highly, highly, highly encourage you to consider running the latest version before submitting a bug report because it's very frustrating to developers when they've already fixed a problem, you just haven't bothered to implement the fix, and now you're having an issue. Then you want the steps to reproduce the bug. If you're asking a developer to fix a problem, you have to tell them how you created the problem in the first place. What did you do that allowed you to run into the bug? And being as verbose and concise as possible, you're explaining it like you would explain it to a five-year-old. How would you walk your five-year-old through clicking exactly what buttons you clicked on in exactly what order and in exactly what way and anything else you think might relate to the, 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 the environment or the steps that produce that bug you should include? Then you should tell them what you expected to do when you, when you produce those steps because sometimes what you're going to find is the developer is going to get back to you and say, uh, yeah, of course that happened. And here's why you didn't, you don't understand how the software is supposed to work. And so we can't rule that out per se. So you should tell them what you were expecting to happen. Then you tell them what actually happened. Here's what I expected to happen. And the developer can go, yep, that's what I would have expected to happen too. And then here's what actually happened. Oh boy, that's not what I expected to happen. How did that happen? You want to provide visual proof. So that can be screenshots. It can be logs. It can be a video. It can be anything, but anything that can help the developer see it on your screen helps them solidify and legitimize the, the bug. So maybe they can't reproduce it on their system, but they can totally see it's happening on your system. Again, there's a variable elimination process that needs to occur there, but that can't even start if they can't see the problem. So some sort of visual proof, some sort of some sort of evidence that, yes, this is happening on my system and here you can see it for yourself. And finally, a severity or priority. Help them understand how important this is to you and how important it might be to other users of their software. 
So we've gone through all of these steps. We've now identified the root cause. We've implemented solutions. We've broken down into our smallest parts. We've applied our solutions to all of these smaller parts. We've documented all of our progress. We have it. Now what? Now we want to review the end goal. What was originally asked of you by the client, by the user, by whoever? And through your RCA process, that's the best case scenarios. We actually determined what was the cause of the problem and we've now resolved it. We want to present the root cause analysis to the person. Here is what the problem was, and here is the solution that we applied. If we can't apply RCA, if we can't determine the root cause, can we at least get a workaround? Can we at least stop the symptoms so that the user can get back to work until we can further investigate and eventually find what the root cause analysis uh, was? And obviously, if we are using a workaround, then hopefully we've escalated or filed a bug, escalated to the software manufacturer, the hardware manufacturer, or we filed a bug to try to get a developer involved. That is the art of troubleshooting. I hope you found it useful. Music in my ears. It means we're out of time. Hey, if you like the show, share it with your friends. Share it on social media. You can follow us on social media. We are at Ask Noah Show. I'm at Colonel Linux. We record this show every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. It's aired at AskNoahShow.com. Available via podcast at podcast.asknoahshow.com. We'll be back next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central at AskNoahShow.com. You can join us via Mumble. You can join us via phone. We take your emails live at asknoahshow.com. If you like the segment, suggest more in the Geek Lab. Hashtag learning. We'll see you next week. Bye.